0: Essentially, this is going to be about the same material. So, if you've read the article, uh, bear with me. But this will have a little bit more details and information. Some people are more visual learners than they are, what do you call it, uh, reading learners? I, audit, not auditory, I don't know what it's called. You got kinetic, you have visual, and you have something else. But for those of you that don't learn by reading, this will suit you really good. Plus, it got a lot of pictures. So everybody loves a little bit of pictures, right? So what's the deal with red heifers? How many people know what I'm talking about when I ask this question? What's the deal with the red heifers? Okay. How many people already have an idea at this point before they read the article that I wrote as far as red heifers? Okay. Seemed like more hands went up before just now than when I first asked whether you've heard it or not. Oh, you were a little, well, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, not surprising. <laughs> So, no, I just uh, want to talk about this a little bit. What's the deal with the red heifers? If you remember, about a year or so ago, there was a Christian farmer out in Texas had bred about five red female cows, and they shipped them over to Israel. So the world made a big to-do about this. Why is a Texas farmer shipping red cows over to Israel and why, like CBN is talking about, why is this stirring prophetic excitement in the nation of Israel? That's really what I want to look at. At the end, we're going to look at five questions. We're going to really answer these at the end. This will be our trajectory. Number one, what is the deal with this red heifer? For those of us that have never even heard of this or maybe seen the articles, maybe seen a video, really hasn't paid it much mind what's the deal? Is it a big deal? Who uses the red heifer? Okay. So they're being bred for a reason. So who is going to use these red heifers and for what purposes? What's the significance? Why is it such a big deal? Must a red heifer be here before the rapture? Do we need to have a red heifer before the rapture? Is this that uh, big deal that CBN made a deal as far as uh, prophetic significance? All right, and so not only that, what do we do learning everything about tonight, about the red heifer? What do we do with it? Is this merely just gee whiz knowledge? Do we just sit, look at scripture, find out what's going on in the world, and be like, huh, that was interesting, and then go about our day the next week? What's, what should we do with this? Well, right off the bat, how many people have heard of the Temple Institute? Okay, can anybody elaborate what the Temple Institute is? <coughs> Will? Yeah, um, there are institutions out there in Israel where they're comparing the, the thing that uh, belongs to the Temple, like the group that's going to run up just the expectation of what uh, the, the time to come. Okay, yeah. so the... Temple Institute has been around for many, 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 many years. So basically what the sole purpose of this ministry or institute, like Will was saying, was to make sure that the Jewish people they don't lose the knowledge of the biblical commands as far as temple services, temple practices, temple instruments, things of that nature. What their sole mission is, is to bring the temple back in operation. This is a big deal. The Temple Institute is, I don't, I'm not going to say they're going to be the place that makes the temple rebuilding efforts happen, but we do know that Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27, that if the Antichrist is going to stop the sacrifices in the middle of the tribulation period, there has to be sacrifices being made. If there's sacrifices being made, there has to be a temple in Jerusalem. That's the purpose of the Temple Institute. So what does the red heifer have to do with any of this? What does the red heifer have to do with the Temple Institute? Well, that's going to take us to Numbers chapter 19. Numbers chapter 19. This isn't even, why isn't this moving forward? Let's see. Now I'm having computer issues. There you go. <laughs> Numbers chapter 19. Let's read a few verses. Numbers 19, 1 through 22. We're going to read the whole chapter. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And ye shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay slay her before his face. And Eleazar the priest shall take of her blood with his finger and sprinkle of her blood directly before the tabernacle of the congregation seven times. And one shall burn the heifer in his sight, her skin and her flesh, her blood with her dung shall he burn. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe his flesh in water. And afterward he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until the evening. And he that burneth her shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his flesh in water and shall be unclean until the evening. And a man that is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and lay them up without the camp in a clean place, and it shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for a water of separation. It is a purification for sin. And he that gathereth the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until the even, and it shall be unto the children of Israel and until the stranger that sojourneth among them for a statute forever He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days he shall purify himself with it uh, on the third day, and on the seventh day he shall be clean, but if he purify him not himself the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean whosoever toucheth the dead body of any man that is dead and purifieth not himself defileth the tabernacle of the Lord. And that soul shall be cut off from Israel because the water of separation was not sprinkled upon him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is yet upon him. This is the law. When a man dieth in a tent, all that come into the tent and all that is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which hath no covering bound upon it is unclean. And whosoever toucheth the one that is slain with a sword in the open fields or a dead body or a bone of the man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer of purification for sin and running water shall be put there thereto in a vessel. And a clean person shall take the hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon all the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that toucheth a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day and on the seventh and on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and shall be clean at even; but the man that shall be unclean sh- and shall not purify himself that soul shall be cut off from among the congregation because he hath defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. the water of separation hath not been sprinkled upon him; he is unclean. And it shall be a perpetual statue unto them that he that sprinkleth the water of separation shall wash his clothes and he that toucheth the water of separation shall be unclean until even. And whatsoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean and the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean until even. That's a tongue twister. Whew, that was a lot to say. So exactly Waylon, exactly. And so what's happening here? This is the big deal as far as the red heifer. So when God gave the command to go ahead and build the tabernacle, one of the things God commanded was that the tabernacle and the people and the instruments were going to be purified with the ashes of a red heifer. And so this is where we get the idea on what is the significance of the red heifer, and we're going to be looking at this a little more. We're told in verse number 9 that it's going to be a purification for sin. So, what are the requirements for this heifer? Because this has been, what, about 3,000 years ago or so when the exodus happened somewhere around there. The tabernacle was built. There's no temple in operation today. So what's the deal and what are the requirements for the heifer? Well, Numbers actually gives us quite a few requirements that uh, that makes it kosher or meeting biblical requirements. Number one, it cannot have a single... Uh, well, it says single red hair, so that's a mistype. It can't have a single white hair or black hair. It has to be completely red, all right? So you'll find, if you were to look at any videos from the Temple Institute or the Jewish people over there in Israel, there you'll see videos of them examining these heifers, these cows, and they're literally combing their hairs, their fur, and they're making sure that there's not a white hair. If there's a single white hair on there, to them it's not kosher, And it does not meet the biblical requirements of it being the red heifer that's going to be made uh, for the purification of sins. Not only that, the red heifers cannot have a spot or a blemish. They can't have improper marks. They can't have broken legs, broken bones, deformities, piercings. So whenever you see cows that have tags on their ears, that would render it not kosher as well. It also never has a yoke upon it. And so it could never have been worked. It couldn't even have a yoke set upon it. Even uh, the rabbis at the time said that even if you put something like an article of clothing on it, they would deem that, consider that as working it. Unless you were protecting it from the elements, you were technically working it if you were setting something on it to rest. And so it could never have been worked before. And then also we find in a couple other passages that the red heifer has to be three years old, three to four years of age. And so the red heifers that were sent over from Texas over to Israel, I think were about one and a half years. So right now they're in in intense scrutiny to see if it meets all the biblical qualifications of being kosher and then to very much protect them as well so that they don't get a broken bone or anything of that sort. So, what they would do? Well, they would take the ashes of the red heifer, they would burn it outside the camp. We're told that here in the beginning of chapter 19 in the book of Numbers. That when the ashes of the heifer were burnt, they would mix in cedar wood, they would mix in hyssop, and they would mix in scarlet wool. And together, they would put all these uh, in some spring water, and that's what they would use to actually sprinkle. When scriptures talk about sprinkling on the individual or onto the instruments of the temple, uh, the menorah, table of showbread, altar of incense, stuff like that, that's what they would use to sprinkle it. Research, I had to double check, but I think it was for Offer Israel website ministry says that the amount of ashes from one red heifer, they believe would be able to purify 660 billion times. And so if you needed to go ahead and do a purification ritual on an instrument or on a person or whatever, that one red heifer, the amount of ashes there would give at least 600 billion times of use. So let's look at the Temple Institute again. The Temple Institute corroborates this information because on their website, they say that they're looking for the revival of complete ritual purity and its contingent upon this red heifer. And so here in Numbers, before the tabernacle is actually in an operation, God has told the Israelite people, this is what you're going to have to do. You're going to have to take this red heifer. You're going to have to take it outside the camp. You're going to have to kill this red heifer. You're going to have to take the ashes, mix it with the water. And with that, you're going to have to render yourself clean by sprinkling it upon you. Now, the person that actually is slaying the red heifer, they would become themselves unclean. So they'd have to go through a ritual purification process. The priest out there as well would be unclean. So that's why he's talking about those that were there. And so before they could even do any aspect with the tabernacle, with the instruments... Even as you saw here that they took some of that blood in in the water and they sprinkled it outside the door of the tabernacle, they had to cleanse and purify that area right by the tabernacle as well. The Jewish people are not going to have a temple in operation until they have a red heifer to fulfill this purification ritual. And this is clearly what the Temple Institute is reporting as well. If there's one person that really understands the aspect of Numbers 19, it's really going to be Orthodox Jews that follow the Torah to the letter. Interesting. Another interesting factoid is the fact that the temple has been in, inoperable since AD 70. It's been destroyed. There's not been a temple that's been reared up since then. That there's over 200 laws from the Mosaic command that cannot be fulfilled. Over 200 of them require a temple. And so they can't fulfill over 200 of their Mosaic laws. Really goes to show that none of us can keep the whole law, especially if we don't have a, a temple to go ahead and keep it as well, which Jesus thankfully abolished and fulfilled the entirety of the law. Now, this is not only a Numbers 19 issue. This is not only a deal with the tabernacle and the exodus this also would have been around the time of Paul. For Paul even references this in Hebrews chapter 9, verse number 13. When he's talking about how much better Christ is than the Old Testament sacrificial system, he references, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling the unclean. So even Paul in first century Judaism is very well understanding as far as the purpose of the red heifer. Now, remember the first temple was Solomon's temple? You had the tabernacle, then you had Solomon's temple, then you had the second temple, Herod's temple, commonly called. And I do believe that the red heifer was in operation during that time as well, especially if the Mosaic law said if you touched a dead body, if you were near a dead body, you had to have the red heifer ashes mixed with crimson wool, with hyssop, and with cedar wood. You had to have this water to render yourself clean again. And so it, it was common knowledge to pause in his day. And so this is not just an Old Testament practice. As we said, there has to be a third temple built. There has to be a court. And we're going to look at some verses here in a minute. But that temple will not be in operation until red heifers are found that meet the biblical requirements of Numbers chapter 19. And until the priest's, All the instruments and the temple compound, temple area itself has been purified through these waters, the sprinkling of the water. It's just not going to happen. We read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. We referenced this earlier. The Antichrist. Halfway through the tribulation period, so the seven-year tribulation period, he's going to go ahead and make the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And so the oblation is a regular time where they would go up to the temple, they do their services in the morning, evening, and I think at lunchtime as well. Halfway through the tribulation period, he's going to cause all that to stop, which makes you understand it has to be in operation when the Antichrist is there, because it has to be in operation. And if it has to be in operation, there has to be a red heifer to purify the area. That's a big deal for why red heifers are around. Daniel chapter 12, verse number 11 says again, And from the time the daily sacrifice be taken away, and the abomination that makes desolate set up will be 1,290 days. And so we read clearly in Daniel. We read throughout the Old Testament as well. And we see a little bit in the New Testament that... The seven-year tribulation period is going to have the temple in full service. Now, my question is, okay, so you have this third temple that supposedly is going to be built. Let's say the Temple Institute is behind the efforts. They champion the vision, and they built this third temple. I personally do not see Jesus Messiah using that third temple, I personally don't see it for two main reasons. Number one, Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48 talks about the messianic temple. And if you look at the locations and the references on where it's supposed to be built and established, it's completely different from where we're reading in the Old Testament and where the argument is as far as in uh, the Temple Mount. Also, you have the issue as far as what are you going to do with the Dome of the Rock? If this third temple is going to be built on Temple Mount, What about the Dome of the Rock? Well, there's actually at least four options on where the temple is supposed to actually sit. Only one of those options is the fact that people believe it's where the Dome of the Rock is. All the other three options are somewhere around that vicinity. So it could be somewhere away from the Dome of the Rock We do see that the Antichrist, when he comes, he's going to make a peace treaty with the nation of Israel, with the Jewish people. And so I do believe that there's going to be some sort of accord between the Arabs and the Jewish people to allow this to happen. You see what's going on with Temple Mount and this whole aspect of a a unifying Principles. I know the Muslims are trying to attack the Jewish people on, on the Temple Mount. They're trying to prevent the Jewish people from claiming that property. They're actually attacking the Jewish people to try to take the entirety of the Temple Mount, and it's a big to-do right now. But there's still been a lot of unifying efforts to try to join the Arabs and the Jewish people, even on that Temple Mount, together. And so if we're seeing that now with Fallen Man, I can't imagine that it would be any less uh, when the Antichrist is here, because we read in scripture that one way or the other, it's going to happen. But not only that, in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27, it says that the temple is going to have the abomination that makes desolate set up. So whether that's your view that a pig or some sort of animal is going to be sacrificed on the altar out there, or whether it's the fact that there's going to be some sort of idol or statue that's erected in Temple Mount, either way, it's going to clearly defile the temple area. I personally don't see Jesus using that temple when it's defiled with the Antichrist. And that's speculation for me, but again, when I read Ezekiel 40 through 48, it talks a little bit more about a different temple. Uh, also, there's passages, and I think Isaiah 66, Dr. Fruntenbaum points out that the third temple, Messiah doesn't even condone God doesn't even condone that building of it. And so there's one temple that's not condoned by God, and many people believe it's that third temple, which is the one that the Antichrist would use to set up this abomination of desolation. So, Old Testament, the tabernacle, the red heifer is going to purify the area, cleanse the people, cleanse the instruments. What about in the future? Well, we'll look at Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. I have the verses up here. Ezekiel chapter 36, this is a passage where a lot of times people misunderstand what the point of these verses are. A lot of times these are used as far as a Christian being saved and they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And because of their being regenerated, God takes out what's called the heart of stone and puts in what's called a heart of flesh. That is not what this passage is talking about. Ezekiel chapter 36, 40, 24 through 27, where it says, For I will take you from among the heathen, gather you out of all the countries, and will bring you into a land of your own. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you. That's a reference, uh, many Jewish people argue, that goes back to the red heifer. The clean water, the sprinkling of the clean water is going back to the red heifer. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Will I cleanse you? Here you go a new heart also will I give you, a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So this is a verse that's often used to teach that when we get saved, we take the heart of stone. God takes the heart of stone out and he gives us a heart of flesh Now we get regenerated. I would agree that there is this new creation within us. Second Corinthians 5, 17, for if any man is We don't see anywhere in the scripture where God says, I'm taking the covenant away from you and placing it upon the church. Number two, out of all the covenants that God makes with Israel, only two of them are conditional. Only two of them are conditional. The first one is the Adamic covenant or the Edenic covenant, I believe. And that's the one that's saying that you don't eat of the tree. If you eat of the tree of knowledge, you know, you will die. So that's the first condition. The second conditional covenant is the Mosaic covenant. If you obey, I will bless you like this. If you disobey, you will incur judgment. All the other covenants God makes with Abraham and Israel are all unconditional covenants. God simply says, I will. If you look at them, look at them in this original context. God says, I will establish my throne forever. I will give you this new heart. I will, I will, I will. And so the big difference... Is just the Edenic and the Mosaic covenants are conditioned upon obedience. The others are conditioned upon God's faithfulness and promise. They're unconditionally given by God to Israel. The only way these covenants would be taken off of Israel and given to the church is if God broke his promise. Because God clearly says, I will. And they are not conditioned upon man's actions, man's works, or anything that man does. We know this isn't part of Israel today because we know there are a lot of Jewish people that deny Jesus as Messiah and they clearly don't walk in the ways of God. Not only in Ezekiel chapter 36, but in Jeremiah chapter 31, this is the main passage where the new covenant actually comes out. So, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. Remember, I will. It doesn't say, if you, I will. It says, I will make a new covenant with who? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now remember, during these days, in Jeremiah's day, this was the divided kingdom. Israel was not as a whole. You had the northern kingdom and then you had Judah. The northern kingdom was commonly referred to as Israel during that day. Judah was the southern kingdom. And that's why it says the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That was the divided kingdom. Ten kingdoms and tribes in the north, two on the south. He says, I will make a new covenant with Israel and the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Referencing the Mosaic covenant. Which my covenant they break. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. And he goes on and says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord... I will, again, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every, every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now this is an interesting passage as well. Because when you look at Isaiah, I think it's 27, verse number six, that there is an iniquity of Jacob that must be purged. It's a singular iniquity. When it's talking about Jacob, it's talking about the entirety of Israel. There's a singular iniquity of Jacob. Just like it says here, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. These are all singular What this points to me is this is the forgiving of the unpardonable sin in the end times. Those that are part of the Life of Messiah series and that have studied Matthew 12 from a Jewish perspective understand that the unpardonable sin is not suicide. It is not murder. You could maybe argue as continual unbelief but let me show you right now out of Mark chapter 6, what is the unpardonable sin? Go to Mark chapter, six, or Mark chapter 3. Go to Mark chapter 3. And sometimes if we just let scripture speak for itself, it'll answer the questions we have. We'll read Mark chapter 3, verse 29 and 30. Mark chapter 3, verse 29. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Verse number 30. Because they said he hath an unclean spirit. That one verse clearly defines what the unpardonable sin is. And going through life of Messiah and understanding Matthew chapter 12 and the purpose of Jesus' first coming and seeing it from a Jewish perspective, the unpardonable sin is the national Jewish leadership's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah based upon them believing he was possessed by a devil. That's what the unpardonable sin is. That's why the pronouncement came in Matthew chapter 12 of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, before he gets into the Olivet Discourse, he's standing, he's looking over the city of Jerusalem. If you were to turn to Matthew chapter 23, verse number 39, and I'll just read it for sake of time, we'll say 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often... Would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall see me not hence you shall not see me henceforth, till you say Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. When the unpardonable sin happened in Matthew chapter twelve, According to a Jewish perspective and an understanding from the biblical text, judgment was pronounced A.D. 70. The Messianic kingdom offer was rescinded to that generation. Judgment was come in the form of Rome to the temple to destroy it. And he says he is burdened over Jerusalem. Talking about Jerusalem, talking about the leadership of Israel, I wished you would have turned to me and come to me, but you would Not. Then he says, you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And to understand that phrase, that's actually a messianic greeting. That's a messianic greeting. That's a phrase that the Jewish people will render when they see Jesus as Messiah. And so, all that unpardonable sin happened. Matthew 12, Mark 3. That one sin of Israel has been committed And then when we look in Jeremiah, it says there's going to be this forgiving forgiving of this iniquity, of this singular sin. And in Isaiah 27, it's either verse 6 or verse 9, where it says the iniquity of Jacob will be purged at that time. A singular iniquity. And so all that to say is, when people ask the question, when is Jesus coming back? Jesus Christ will come back when the Jewish leadership acknowledges him as the Messiah and petition for his call. We can see this in Zechariah chapter 13, one of the many prophets that most people don't read. We can see this in Revelation chapter 12, where in the middle of the tribulation period, they flee to the mountains. You can see it in the Olivet Discourse as well, that the Jewish remnant, there will be one-third of the Jewish believers that are spared during the tribulation period. Two-thirds of the Jewish people, according to Zechariah 13, will be killed during the tribulation period, according to the scriptures. That one-third it will be the believing remnant that flees to the wilderness, according to Revelation 12. And I believe, personally, it will be the resurrection of the two witnesses, whether it's Elijah and Moses, Elijah and Enoch, or whoever you believe the two are, those resurrections, I think, in Revelation 11 that will convince them that Jesus was the Messiah and call for his return. That's when the new covenant will be completely fulfilled, I would argue. And so when you start looking into like Messianic Jewish uh, commentaries and studies, and I believe Dr. Fruitbaum even points out, and I'm not going to get into this tonight because while I agree with it, I can't argue it nearly as well as he can but in the messianic kingdom or the millennial kingdom i believe fruitbomb and, and other people i think dr woods talks about this that there will be no jewish people that sin in the kingdom because this new covenant has been fulfilled now there will be people born during the tri- during the kingdom period but i believe those are all gentiles that will be born they will have to trust Jesus as the Savior, as Messiah, to forgive him for sins, things of that nature. But because of the new covenant that's completely fulfilled at that time, that there would not be a Jewish sinner in the Messianic kingdom. Now I can get you references and resources if you'd like to look at that and go down that rabbit trail and see what that has to say as far as from a Jewish perspective. But it's interesting when we're looking at Ezekiel and Jeremiah that Tying all this back into the red heifer. The Jewish remnant will have to be purified by the ashes of this red heifer. This will be a complete fulfillment of the new covenant. And then like we had said, all Jewish people will know Messiah. And will walk according to his commandments. And so, we're almost done. But I want to give you guys sort of a timeline, a snapshot. So, we're going to look at some things... When we see stuff in green, there are things that already happened or is happening. Uh, We're going to see some things in blue that could happen prior to the rapture. And then things in white, things that won't happen until after the rapture. And so we see that the Jewish people returned to Israel in 48. That was a huge deal, right? So a lot of the Jewish people returned home. As of many, many, many years ago... There have been a lot of priests in Israel, thankfully to the Temple Institute, but I think other organizations as well, they have been getting trained in how to make certain sacrifices and how to... uh, find kosher items, instruments, things of that nature. There has been a lot of educating and training. You can even find videos of people in Israel going through ritual processes of these Levitical priests to see, okay, how would they do this, that, stuff like that. They're educating and training their people so that when they have a temple, they already know what they're doing. This has been going on for years. The Temple Institute already has every instrument they need for the temple. They already have it. Now, they're going to need to purify it with the ashes of the red heifer and the sprinkling of the clean water, but they have all of those. You can even go on the Temple Institute's website and look at the pictures of them as well. We've already seen them breeding the red heifers. Now, since I think they were only a year and a half old when they were shipped, and they were shipped last year, so about a year maybe they're two and a half they're still not meeting the biblical requirements I don't even remember if they disqualified any because of finding white hairs or black hairs whatever the case is but the mere fact that they're able to breed red cows is a big deal and getting them shipped over to Israel alright so those are things that we know have happened already or is being happening that are happening now what needs to happen well Need to secure the temple site. Now, remember, in the second temple, now this is the Dome of the Rock, but when we think of Herod's temple, the second temple, we think of like Solomon's portico and the outer wall and Antonia Fortress. That's not what they need. They just need the temple, they don't need the entire compound. They just need that temple. So like we said earlier, there's one of four locations where the temple could actually legitimately be. And I think Aaron knows a lot more about that than I do. So if you have any questions, pick his brain afterwards. He'll tell you where he thinks it is and why the other three are wrong. But uh, what needs to happen is we need to secure a temple site or they do, I should say. This could happen before the rapture. You could see this. Not only that, the temple needs to be built. This is essentially what needs to be built. Just this. Now, these are different courts. You have the court of the Gentile. This is a Soreg. So, this is a divider. Gentiles could be out here. Only Jewish people could be inside here. If you were caught crossing that Soreg, you would actually be punishable up to death. Okay, so Gentiles could be out here. And then you have the court of the women. So when you think about the woman who cast in her her two mites, it would have been uh, one of these, there's four of these little areas. One of them was the treasury. And so this would have been where she cast in her mite. And then past that door, you have the court of the men. And then you have entrance into the temple. So there needs to be this third temple built. It could be built during our lifetime. It doesn't necessarily have to be built after the rapture. We could see this happening. We just know it has to be built because sacrifices have to be made. The services have to be completed. From there, once it's built, the red heifer is going to be used to purify the area, to purify the instruments, to purify the priests and all the people. And so we could see that happen as well before the rapture. We could. Because again, they're not going to start the temple services until it's purified. And you just saw earlier from the Temple Institute's website that they need the red heifer. That their services is contingent upon the red heifer's ashes. Now, after the rapture, the Antichrist is going to rise to power. We don't know how far after the rapture could happen today. The antichrist could come on the scene tomorrow. It could be ten, twenty, fifty years. We don't know how long after the rapture the antichrist is going to become on the world scene. Which really led me to an interesting thought I had a long time ago. If you knew who the antichrist was, would you try to kill him? You ever thought about that? Yeah. And then think about this, okay? So if we knew who the Antichrist was, and say you wanted to kill him, you couldn't. Because God's word says that the Antichrist is gonna do this and gonna do that. So just as the same way that the Pharaoh was raised up in Romans chapter nine. It's not a passage talking about election to salvation, but it's talking about an election to the position of being that Pharaoh in Egypt, that he raised that Pharaoh up so that God could reveal his glory through the Exodus. The same way, if scripture says the Antichrist is going to do this, is going to do that, you and I will not be able to kill the Antichrist. Matter of fact, Revelation, I believe, talks about he gets killed and then he supposedly comes back to life, or so it seems. So it's just an interesting thought. Because if we could, Scripture would be broken. What about Daniel chapter 9? What about Revelation and the mark of the beast? This unholy trinity that is referenced, it won't happen. You're talking about a secession of antichrists? Yeah. This one dies, you can one. Well, I, I personally hold that there is one individual that God will use. Now, I do know the Bible talks about there are antichrists, you know, that people that have a message against Christ and they're contrary to Christ. But I do believe that there's a specific individual. And when we read in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel chapter 11, the first half talks about Antiochus the fourth, but then the latter half of Daniel chapter 11 talks about the Antichrist. And there's going to be very similar uh, things between the two of them. And what's happening, their personalities, and things of that nature. I personally believe there's an individual Antichrist that God is going to raise up to go ahead and use for that purpose. Now I do believe that it's going to be like the case of Judas Iscariot. Where God doesn't make an individual to go to hell. But God, in His omniscience, knows what an individual will do, mm-hmm. and it's that individual that God would use as that purpose. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of. <laughs> What's up, Well, well I've heard also that since, uh, since the devil was in general, he coming, that there would be like some sort of generation, almost a like succession, like every generation would have yeah. to have one in the world before that. And it. And it, it it could be. I personally don't hold the view. I believe that there's an individual one. I do believe when I'm reading about the Antichrist, like in Revelation and other passages, there's definite articles used for him, whether that's just using the definite article when that one in the succession comes up or not. Yeah? Well, like when like you say that uh, at that point in time, it's not the Antichrist, but once in the Antichrist, right? Do what? Like when you say Now that's, if, now that's if you believe that he's embodied at a later time or if he's just so predisposed to evil that that's the individual God uses, you know, and, and that's getting into the weeds and trying to speculate into scripture, you know, and so it could be that Satan's always been rearing up an antichrist to use for these purposes, uh, but I, you know, I just don't personally hold that particular view, but I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm probably wrong myself. All we know is there's going to be an Antichrist risen to power at some point in time. When that Antichrist comes up, we read in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, that the temple sacrifices are going to be done with. They're going to be halted halfway through the tribulation period. This is going to cause quite a stir with the Jewish people, especially after all the time trying to get this red heifer in operation. Then he's going to perform what's known as the abomination that makes desolate, whether it's sacrificing something on the altar or standing up some sort of idolatry, idolatrous statue, something's going to happen that Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse, when you see the uh, abomination that makes desolate, flee to the mountains. And so that one third of the Jewish people, that Jewish remnant, I would argue, they're the ones that He that endures to the end will be saved. When they see that, they will flee to the mountains. They will be physically spared from the death and the persecution from the Antichrist's reign. Then after that, we got the return of Christ. Revelation chapter 19, he comes back on a white horse with the armies of heaven. And he goes ahead and starts his campaign of Armageddon. All that to say about the red heifer. So what is the deal with this red heifer? The articles. A year ago, Texas sent a whole bunch of red heifers over to Israel. What's the deal? First, the Temple Institute. They're a big proponent trying to advocate get the temple built. They cannot and they will not start temple services without the ashes of a red heifer. And you could tell just by reading some of their material that if it has a single white hair, it's not kosher. So it has to have all red hair. Who uses the red heifer? I personally think there's two uses for it. There'll be two people. One, I think that the Jewish people are going to use it for the third temple when it's in operation. But then second, when we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, where God says, I will sprinkle the clean waters on you and purify you. I believe it's possible that Messiah will use the red heifer and cleanse Israel as well. That's just me inferring into the scripture. I could be wrong, but we do know there's at least one purpose of that red heifer. And then, like it says there on the bottom, uh, it would be the fourth temple in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is where that second red heifer would be used. So what's the significance? Well, the fact that they're breeding red heifers and they're being somewhat successful with it and they're keeping them under lock and key, trying to protect them, it's pretty exciting because we're seeing something that's been written many, many years ago coming alive, you know? And it really gives you the idea that Scripture is real, is accurate, it's trustworthy. People always ask, you know, if you could get one person uh, a book of the Bible, any unbeliever a book of the Bible, what would you give them? Most people say the Gospel of John great book. Talks about how to get saved, how to have eternal life. Believe. One of the books I would have on my top three list is the book of Daniel. Because the book of Daniel has so much historical accuracy from prophecy that it is unreal. It is supernatural work. And so, what we're seeing with the red heifer is exciting because we're seeing certain things transpire that have to transpire before Messiah comes back. Will, were you going to say something? No, i just curious, uh, is the red heifer breeding program fairly recent? I think it's been going on for a little bit, but as fact as them being able to actually have red heifers that seem to meet the qualifications, I think was just last year. That's why it sort of went up. But as far as trying to breed the red heifers, yeah, but I think it's been around for a few years. So, must the red heifer be here before the rapture? It doesn't necessarily have to be here before the rapture. It could, but we have to remember the rapture. The rapture is imminent. I'm not a mid-tribber, I'm not a post-tribber, I'm not a pre-rather mid-tribber, I'm a pre-trib guy. And so the fact that the rapture is imminent doesn't mean it'll happen in a short period of time. It means that there are no signs needing to be fulfilled before it happens. If you look back into early church father history, as I believe Irenaeus in the second or third century was a big proponent of the imminency of Christ's return. We know that the second return of Christ, when he physically comes to earth, that cannot happen until after the seven-year tribulation period, after the Antichrist, after the mark of the beast. So we know when that will happen. But the rapture could happen at any moment. It could happen tonight, which would be great if it did, but it could happen at any moment. So the red heifer doesn't necessarily have to be here before the rapture to take place. With all this being said, the red heifer, the fact that you need ashes, you need crimson wool, you need hyssop, you need spring, lo- local spring water, you need cedar wood. mix it all together, and you got to sprinkle somebody that's been around a dead corpse. If you got to sprinkle the tabernacle, the temple, the instruments, who cares, right? Why does it matter? Well, it matters quite a bit. Number one, like I said, signs are lining up. Like Pastor Ken mentioned, the fact that there seems to be more of a demonic, occultic uh, rise, which was very similar to the first coming of Christ, really somewhat points to the fact that maybe the second coming of Christ is coming pretty soon. And so that aspect, and just seeing it being fulfilled. Also, the sovereignty of God. We look at the world, and we think this world is governed by humans, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes that you and I don't realize. That when Daniel in that chapter 9 was praying, I think it's Daniel chapter 10, actually, he was praying, and he was praying for 21 days. And Gabriel finally comes, and he said, I was coming, but the prince of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And I had to wait for Michael, the archangel, to come. There was a battle. There's no human person that could stop the angel Gabriel. From going somewhere, This has to be a celestial being. This has to be a spiritual being that Gabriel called the Prince of Persia. Realizing the fact that there are spiritual warfare going on all the time. And regardless of what we see in the world today, the fact that there's this need for a red heifer, the fact that the red heifer is being bred gives us the realization that no matter how bad this world looks, God is still sovereignly in control of world affairs. All of this is happening according to what his foreordained plan called for. It really should give us excitement, but also evangelism. When I preached a while back on a, my message called TikTok from Revelation 9 and 10, if we believe in the literal uh, understanding of Scripture— And we believe some parts of Revelation is a literal understanding. And that there's going to be a lot of demonic activity. There's going to be a lot of people that are going to try to kill themselves and wish they were dead, but they cannot. And there's going to be a lot of terror during the tribulation period. That should spur us to evangelism. Because if we don't know when the rapture could happen, those moments in Revelation 9 and 10... They could be two years down the road, four years down the road. And so who do we know now that isn't saved that we definitely wouldn't want then going through those days? And in the same way in that TikTok message, we sort of drew that evangelistic message out, this as well. The red heifer is pointing to the fact that signs are lining up that the return of Christ, I believe, is drawing nigh. And so if that's the case, and we truly believe the word of God, then we would really be more evangelistic to say, okay, we're seeing all these signs. We believe the rapture is imminent. Things are lining up. They're working. They've trained the priests. They've got on the instruments. Now they may even have the red heifer to purify everything. There's nothing else really needed except the temple. We're getting pretty close. So who do I know now that isn't saved that I don't want around during the 70th week of Daniel. And that should spur evangelism. So that's the whole deal with the red heifer. The Jewish people need it to start temple services again. They're not going to start the temple operation until the red heifer is here. That's why it's such a big deal, according to Numbers chapter 19. So now, if anything, we've learned a little bit about red female cows, And what role they play as far as the Old Testament and the New Testament. And why it even matters. Any questions, comments, critiques, concerns? Aaron, where's the temple actually located? Right. They're the ones, you know, in charge of this, but... Um, yeah. You know, the other yeah, They just wanted the Dome of the Rock so they can get the Dome of the Rock moved away, huh? Yeah. So, but yeah. So talk to Aaron offline if you have questions about the temple. Emory. Is it God's decision on when the red heifer becomes available? Is it God's decision? That's a good question. I want to open it up for the group. What do you think? Is it God's decision for when the red heifer is available? Thoughts? Yeah. No? Just They're just breeding them? Yeah. Okay. The Can get them? I don't think God's gonna say, okay, here's red heifer. So you don't think he'll like supernaturally intervene? Okay. Yeah. It's a good question. I think that God will make sure the red heifer is there when it needs to be there. That's the safest answer I'm going to give you. I don't read anything in scripture that says God is going to put a red heifer here or there. But the fact that the temple is going to be built, it's going to be in operation, Antichrist is going to defile it. When all the stars line up, God will make sure a red heifer is on the scene that meets the kosher requirements to go ahead and make that temple happen. And so that's the best I can answer as far as that's concerned. So there's a lot of things that we just don't know about Scripture, you know. So, and that's a good question, though. Maybe it's something we talk about Thursday night when you come over to the forge. (laughs) Any other questions, comments, critiques, concerns? No? All right. Well, hopefully you got something out of this. Uh, Like I said, probably around the 17th of September, we're going to get back into the book of James. First week, we're going to do just a quick review, and then from there, we'll be in James chapter 4. So, if you want to go ahead and read ahead, uh, we'll be in James chapter 4 at that time, and we'll finish that up. Just two more chapters to go, and we'll figure out what to do from there. So, if nobody has anything, I'll close with prayer, and then we will see y'all, Lord willing, on Wednesday. God, again, I thank you for uh, just this study and the aspect of the excitement of these red heifers being sent over to your people in Israel. And I pray that it just gives us excitement as well because we see just things aligning in the fact that uh, you're sovereignly in control in the world affairs. And so whenever you want this to happen, it's going to happen. And we thank you and we trust you in that regard. And so allow us to just spurn us excitement as well as give us a, a focus of evangelism to go ahead and tell people before it's too late. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.